Father, as we think of the Christmas season, which is coming up, and all of the decorations and other things that are becoming ubiquitous in the world around us, we often are reminded of how little the world really understands of the true meaning of Christmas and of the true meaning of your word. Oh Lord, we're so grateful that you have opened our eyes that we might see and that you have penetrated our lives with the light of your gospel and of your love. And Lord, we at this hour, this moment, submit to you and ask you to be Lord of our lives and ask, Lord, that you will keep us with our eyes focused on you in spite of all the uh, tinsel and all the noise that goes along with the Christmas season. Help us to remember the true meaning of Christ's coming, that he might die, that we might have life eternal. And as we focus this morning again on the life of Jacob, help us to see how the same Savior who died for us was the Savior who was at work in Jacob's life to bring about the fulfillment of the covenant and to effect the plan of God on this planet. Lord, we ask for you to be present with us now and throughout this Sunday school during these moments ahead. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 12th verse of the 33rd chapter, 33rd chapter of Genesis, verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he, that is Jacob, said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. And Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. <clears throat> we have witnessed one of the most profound encounters in history as Esau and Jacob met after 20 years of separation, separation that was charged with the hatred that had been generated by the interaction between Jacob and Esau before the separation occurred. And of course, Jacob had much fear as he knew he would have to encounter Esau and he'd been told that Esau was coming not alone but with 400 armed men. This, of course, didn't seem to be a good omen to uh, Jacob and therefore he prepared accordingly. But as we read, he had this profound encounter with the angel of the Lord there on the north side of the brook Jabbok. And, and that would be a, another life-changing experience. And again, as I emphasized last time, I'd like for us just to, to picture that 20-year period in Jacob's life initiated by his encounter with God at Bethel, the 20 years that he spent there with Laban, acquiring his wives, his children, his flocks, and then this profound encounter again with the Lord at Penuel on the brook Jabbok. So you have these, these two punctuation 
or exclamation points, if you will, uh, surrounding that 20-year period of growth and of development of faith. And now Jacob has had this wonderful account, uh, encounter with Esau, which we talked about last week. And now Esau is making an offer to help escort him on his way. I think it's important for us to realize that Esau is genuine here in his offer. Esau does not apparently have anything up his sleeve or any plan that would uh, lead to evil for Jacob. I think he really wants to be committed to this new relationship with his brother, and therefore he's offering to escort Jacob and Jacob's family to Mount Seir. Come home with me. Come and see what I have. See my family. See, uh, the, the, in effect, the kingdom, or at least the princedom that I rule. But Jacob declines the author, kindly, of course, for at least four reasons, I think. Now, he may have not have thought all these four things that I have listed here, but certainly one or more of these factors was behind his choice to decline uh, Esau's offer. First, I think the reason which he gave to Esau that we read in the scripture here was sincere on the part of Jacob. They, they had driven the herds for hundreds of miles hard in order to escape from Laban. And certainly everyone was worn out. And, and it was time for rest and recuperation to take place. And think about it, 400 camel-mounted armed warriors having to travel at the pace of a lamb or a little child. It would be very frustrating. And so Jacob didn't want this frustration to be there. He, he felt these 400 men need to get home to their family, to their children, to their flocks. So why hold them back? Why keep them here? I, I think he was sincere in those thoughts. Although as you read about uh, the, the statement here and you realize what has just transpired, you wonder. You know, where he says, oh, but if we really press these flocks for one day hard, they'll all die. <laughs> and he had just pressed them for two solid weeks. And, and we looked at, at the mathematics of that as we looked at, this past, uh, at the passage that he, ha he had a maximum of two, uh, of two weeks to, to push all those flocks 350 miles. It's a long ways to go in two weeks and to drive herds of animals before you. And so, obviously, there's a bit of a, an excuse being offered here. But secondly... I think Jacob felt that although they had fallen on one another's shoulders and they had wept tears of forgiveness, and although they, the, the, the healing was beginning to take place, I think he felt it was going to take time for these two brothers to restore a full brotherly relationship here. And I think he felt that if they were too close too soon, that the friction of their closeness might aggravate old wounds and renew old hostilities. And so it's probably better for Esau to move on and for contact to break off for a period of time and let separation maybe participate in the healing. Thirdly, I think Jacob was thinking, I don't want to become too closely linked to Esau. 
Esau has his own life. He has his own kingdom. He has his own family. And, and later on, as I mentioned last week, we'll see that he also had 12 sons. And, and he had these 400 men at least who were you know, sort of like his vassals, I suppose you could say. And so it was very obvious in this particular situation that Jacob could get swallowed up in what Esau was and what Esau had. And he might become uh, inseparable from Esau. And he didn't want that to happen because he needed to maintain his independence. Because the promise of God was to Jacob, not to Esau. And therefore it was up to Jacob to carry on the covenant and to remain a separate entity. And then fourthly, it's possible from, from what we read here and what happens that he had no intention of going to Mount Seir at all. In fact, uh, one commentator, uh, Alan Ross, makes the following observation from about this particular passage. He says, Jacob cleverly avoided traveling with Esau. He led Esau to think that he needed to travel slowly because of his young children and young animals and that he would meet with Esau at Seir. But Jacob headed in the opposite direction, north to Succoth. Now, you'll notice Succoth's not exactly north, but a little bit north. Uh, it's more west. <laughs> Instead of south to Seir, he may have been wise to avoid Edom, but he did not need to deceive his brother again. Well, those are pretty strong words. Obviously taking a, a specific viewpoint on, on what happened here in this passage. Professor Ross is not willing to cut Jacob any slack here, it seems. He still views him as a deceiver. You know, once a deceiver, always a deceiver. Well, hopefully that's not true. Hopefully as the Lord enters our lives, we can become transformed and we can become a different person than we were before. And, the God, and God works with us to, to work us through those characteristics of our lives that are not godlike. We'll never be perfect, obviously. We'll never achieve the place where we never sin. But I would like to think that maybe Jacob was a little bit more innocent in all of this than that. We need to be fair with Jacob here, I think, that uh, he and his family had been going through great stress. The stress of the flight from Paden Aram all the way down to what we would today call the country of Jordan. And the, 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 the constant fear of what would happen when Laban caught up with them. And the fear of what would happen when the encounter occurred with Esau. So we have to keep those things in mind. Remember, Jacob and, and his wives and his children were under stress. We, we kind of think of stress as only something in modern society that we're the only people in history who ever got stressed out. Well, that's probably far from the truth. Uh, obviously, uh, stress can come in almost any environment. But what was good was, of course, those, those hurdles had been cleared. And the, the situation with Laban had been straightened out. The meeting with Esau had turned out well. The hurdles had been cleared. And so now it was time to relax. Time to rest. Time to move at a pace that would allow the survival of the weakest of the animals, the little lambs, as they would have to trot along with the flock. Well, both of Esau's offers, his offer to himself with all the men travel along, 
or to just leave a portion of the 400 to, to guard uh, Jacob and his family. Bo both of these offers were refused by Jacob. What need is there? I don't need the escort. We'll be fine. I have men of my own. Uh, it's not far to go. We've arrived safely thus far. We don't need an escort. I think it may have come to Jacob's mind that after surviving the encounter with Laban and the encounter with Esau, then any other encounter couldn't be anything but a piece of cake in comparison. You know, what's to fear? I mean, who is there anyway that would be a threat? In addition, and I think this is important because I think it was true of Jacob, the clear demonstration of God's presence, the fact that God had met him at Jabbok, the fact that God had brought this encounter together as, as, as in a more beautiful way than Jacob could ever have hoped, this was a clear demonstration that God was with Jacob and that God was going to carry out what he had promised at Bethel and what he had promised at Penuel. And therefore, he and his servants could handle any situation that came along. Now, he couldn't read in the scripture where it says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But I think he had a little inkling of that truth here. That with the power of God with him, with the presence of God, that there really wasn't any problem that he uh, couldn't handle, particularly since obviously the situation with Laban and, and with Esau were the greatest hurdles he could imagine that he would have to face. Now, it doesn't say so here, but I, I think if we can just kind of, if we could go back and, and watch the situation, we would see that I think Jacob and Esau didn't just meet together, cry on each other's shoulders, and, and, and Jacob introduced his family, and then Esau say, hey, look, uh, let me escort you back to my place. No, I, I think they camped, and I think they, they talked with one another, maybe for several days, there by the brook Jabbok. And, and the two brothers talked about what had gone on for the past 20 years. And Jacob explained the whole situation with Laban and how he had been ripped off and how God had blessed him and given him this, these vast herds and, and the four wives that he had and the 12 children, at least, that he had at that time. And I think Esau, on his part, explained what had happened to him and how he ended up at Seir and how he had uh, multiplied and probably talked a little bit about what was going on with mom and pop because certainly Esau knew better than, uh, than Jacob did about his mother and his father. Well, there's no mention made of such a discussion. In fact, there's no mention made here of Esau, uh, that is, of Isaac or Rebekah at all. In fact, as you proceed further in Genesis, you'll discover there is no further mention made of either Isaac or Rebekah except having to do with the death or burial of those two people. But you cannot help but believe they talked about mom and pop. I mean, after all, these were extremely important people in their lives. And, and all the other factors, I mean, it's just natural. Besides, in, in that part of the world, it was a very common courtesy to sit down and just talk. They did a lot more talking in those days uh, than, than we tend to do, unless it's just before class. Uh, <laughs> no, but it's, it's good. It's good, and, and, and it's important for us to do that. 
But, you know, they didn't have any television or radio or CDs or Walkman or anything else to, to turn their minds away from communicating with one another. Uh, and so I think there was a great deal of this that went on between these two brothers. Well, as you read down through the passage, you quickly discover that Esau finally accepted Jacob's kind refusal to both of his offers and set out to return to Mount Seir with his men. All right, guys, let's go home. And I think the 400 men were very happy to do so. After all, yes, this was Esau's brother, and, and yes, it was important for Esau to have this meeting, but hey, things are happening back home. We need to get home. I, I think they were glad that Jacob refused the escort. They wanted to get home, I'm sure, to their own flocks and to their own families. Now notice something at the end of verse 14. We read, Until I come to my Lord at Seir. Seems to be a clear statement by Jacob that he did intend to visit his brother at Seir. Now Seir is off the bottom of the map. Uh, in the lower right hand corner, if you could follow down, a little bit further, uh, Seir was down in there. It was in the uh, rocky uplands of what later became known as Edom. In order for Jacob to go to Mount Seir, the quickest route would have been for him to follow straight down the king's highway to the south. But there is absolutely no mention of any trip made by Jacob to Seir in this passage. And therefore, we must assume either Professor Ross was right and Jacob was just trying to get Esau off his back, get Esau to leave so that he could journey on to the west and that he had no intention of going to Seir, which if that were true, he had directly lied to his brother and, and his deceiving was still a part of his character. Now, this is very possible. And uh, we should not be surprised either, right? Because even after we've been Christians for many years, sometimes things pop up in our minds and actions happen that we're just, you know, oh, no, could I do that? Could I think that? Could I say that? Yep, I could and I did. And so it's, it's very possible. But it's also possible, secondly, that Jacob did intend to travel to Mount Seir. And it was his full intention to go down uh, and, and visit his brother. But as uh, days passed after his brother left and he started to think about it more clearly, he thought, take all these animals and all these people and go all the way down to Seir. This, this just doesn't seem like a practical thing to do. And maybe, therefore, he thought better of it and felt that he had better go west because this is really what God intended him to do. Or, thirdly, and, and, and some commentators think that this is true, and they, they, in fact, talk about it as if it happened, even though the Scripture does not say that it did, that what he intended to do was go west over to the hill country, travel south to Hebron, visit his folks, and then go over to Mount Seir. And, and that's possible, but there's no reference to it in the Scripture. And that would be the long way around, and Esau would have to be waiting quite a while for Jacob to make that uh, journey. Now, you know, it sounds like he's, he's saying, look, just go on down and we'll come at our own pace, but we're coming directly. 
That's what it sounds like in, in the wording that we read there. Now, it is possible, it is possible that he did go to Mount Seir and that the scripture is totally silent on the trip. That's a possibility. Doesn't seem to fit the flow here, but as we're going to note in a minute, there are two big time gaps in, in, in this passage and into the next chapter, and it's possible within those time gaps that he did make the trip. It's possible he didn't take his whole family with him. He may have just gone alone, or he may have just gone with a small group. These are possibilities. So as we look at this, we dare not have a cut and dried interpretation or understanding of the events as they uh, apply, uh, took place here. Well, whatever the case, it seems that, that Jacob continued down the Jabbok. Now, you, it doesn't show up real well here on this particular... Uh, th this map comes in color in the student map manual. Uh, so when you try to copy it, it doesn't come out all that great. But if you look over here in the very middle at what would be look, your, the right-hand side of the map here, you'll find that there's a little dark mark through here. That's the route of the Jabbok as it uh, slices down through the plateau and then comes out onto the Jordan Plain. And whether he followed right down, you see um, a man name over there further to the right and then a little bit further along you find Penuel. Uh, these are thought to be the sites of the two events that we read about in the passage that he may have followed the canyon on down into the uh, Jordan Plain. Uh, it's very possible he did, even though the canyon does get pretty steep in places. But nevertheless, uh, he may have come out there, and you'll see the name Succoth written there. And it seems to be straight out from the end of the Jabbok. That's why when the commentator said that he went north instead of went so going south, that doesn't seem to fit at all what we see here. He went due west. He didn't go north at all. Uh, from the meeting or the encounter site with, uh, with Esau. But the point is, he went in a different direction, whichever direction it was. And so he, he came out to that uh, particular site there, which is called Succoth. Now, if you have ever been, and I know some of you have, uh, down in the Jordan Valley, you know that the Jordan Valley uh, is the entire Jordan Valley is below sea level. <clears throat> uh, the Sea of Galilee is over 600 feet below sea level, and it's all downhill from there to uh, the Dead Sea, which is 1,300 feet below sea level. So as you go down into the Jordan Valley <clears throat> from the uh, plateau up there of Jordan, what used to be called Transjordan, as you come down, you're coming into a region that has a subtropical environment. And in the dead of winter, I think I've mentioned to you this before, it's absolutely delightful down there. You know, it may be January and it may be snowing in Jerusalem, but at Jericho it's 72 and, and the trees are blooming and the fruit is hanging on the trees. We all remember that so well who've been there. And, and Jericho is a wonderful place. I'm not too sure how wonderful it's going to be uh, <laughs> as the transfer is made uh, of that area over to Palestinian control. But uh, anyway, it, it has been. And uh, Succoth is somewhere near 1,000 feet uh, below sea level. 
And so the climate is, is uh, very mild in the winter and very hot in the summer. I mean, we're talking about temperatures that can soar to 120 degrees uh, in parts of this, uh, in this valley. The further south you get, the hotter uh, it becomes. And so he has moved down into the, onto the plain there. And there's water, of course, available as the Jabbok wends its way across before it makes its confluence with the, uh, with the Jordan. And there he camped for a while to rest his family and to rest his flocks. Really a kind of an ideal place to do that. Uh, almost like a little oasis uh, there for him to camp. So on the plain there, I don't know if you can picture this, but uh, come out on the plain and, and behind you would be the, the rather steep escarpment of the, um, of the edge of the, the Rift Valley, which is what that is. The whole valley is a, is a fault zone, uh, the largest fault on, on the surface of the earth that it runs on land is, uh, runs through that area. The San Andreas Fault is a miniature little nothing compared to the great rift zone that runs from Lebanon all the way down to the mouth of Mozambique River in southern Africa. It's a far greater fault uh, line, and it's been extremely active down through history. And uh, one of the major features located on it is, is the great Lake Victoria, which is in part of that down-faulted area. It's called the Groben uh, region through there. And um, why am I saying this? Oh, and, and so you see the escarpment rising up behind, and, and that escarpment tends to be uh, with some vegetation in the lower parts, and the higher you get, uh, the less vegetation there is. Now, what there was 3,800 years ago is hard to know because we know the whole region has been relatively, relatively deforested from what it was in the early period of uh, Canaanite control. But there, uh, sort of at the point where the foothills pass out onto the plain, he camped and, and he built these little lean-tos, kind of little brush shacks, if you will, which are called booths. And, and these were the places for the animals to get in out from the sun, so that in the really hot afternoons in the summertime, the animals could get into the shade. And so as a result of apparently the construction of several of these, the name of the place was Place of the Booths, which is Succoth. Now the scripture also tells us here in, in that particular uh, passage in verse 17, uh, Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And the, typical, and the word used here is, is just the standard word used all through the Old Testament for a house. But it in no way tells us anything about the house, what it was made of, how big it was. The word is just a generic term. And uh, so we would have to assume it was probably a fairly simple house because it was a temporary dwelling. And it would be a place probably so that his family could get out of the elements uh, when necessary. They're probably tired of living in tents, even though uh, being nomadic as they were for as long as they were, Tent dwelling was, was fairly common to them. Uh, I think it was just kind of a, a nice difference to get inside some kind of a stable dwelling and particularly to get out of the hot sun in the middle of the summertime. 
Now, between verses 17 and verse 18, we have a significant time gap. There is a break here in which there is no chronology of what happens uh, between verses 17 and verse 18 for the period of time that passes there. Probably we're talking about several months. So he rested there. I mean, what would be the purpose of building lean-tos and, and a semi-permanent house if you're just going to be there for a couple of nights? be no point in it at all. So the implication is that he planned to stay there at Succoth and, and rest this family and rest the flocks for a period of probably several months. And, and as I said before, it's possible that during that time he made a quick trip down to Mount Seir to visit his brother and then came back. There's no reference to that here, but it's possible. It's, it's a quiet place, <laughs> if you will, in Scripture. Finally, uh, he felt that his family and his flocks were ready for another trip. And so he decides to make the move across to the Western Highlands. Now they're, of course, quite visible there. Even today they're quite visible uh, with all of the smog and everything else that exists. You can imagine in that day they must have just loomed up before him, like, pardon me, like a great wall as he looked across and, and the uh, uh, western escarpment also rose up a couple of thousand, well, actually from where he was, 3,000 feet up into the air uh, above him. So he, he makes the move across. Now, if you look at your map, you'll see that from Succoth to the southwest, there is a faint line running there. That's the, the road that ran through the Jordan Valley. And you'll notice that then there is an east-west line that crosses that one uh, about half an inch to the southwest of uh, Succoth. That's one of the connectors that connected the Via Maris, the Ridge Route, and the King's Highway together. And where that connector crosses the Jordan River is probably where Jacob took his family across because that's the ford called Adam. And it was an area that was very commonly uh, crossed because that is where the Jordan was easiest to cross. Now, the Jordan is, a, is not a great barrier. If you've ever seen the Jordan, except when it's at absolute flood stage, the Jordan is, is a relatively small river or just a large creek, really. Remind you of Battle Creek? Well, that doesn't tell me anything because I've never seen Battle Creek. Oh, you're talking about Battle Creek here? Oh, I thought you meant Battle Creek in Michigan. I still haven't seen Battle Creek here, so it doesn't matter. Little calmer, yeah. Well, it depends, yeah, for the most part. The, the Jordan really wins its way through there, and you, you see parts of the lower Jordan, and you know, it seems like it takes the, if you were to, sit, if you were to travel the river, you'd, you'd travel 10 miles to progress about three south because the river meanders back and forth and back and forth across the floodplain as it moves down towards the um, and they, they draw it a little bit there of course obviously you don't draw it perfectly but you see that it wins its way around a lot meanders around so certainly that's the place where he took his family across now that's very close by the way to where the Jabbok comes in to the Jordan the Jabbok comes in just a little bit south of, of that particular uh, ford. Now, once he was across, he faced the great escarpment of the, uh, east, of the western highlands. 
So the point then was how to get up there, because he needed to get up on top. Well, you'll notice where the road goes. The road does not, after it crosses the river, the road does not head southwest in the direction he'd want to go, which is towards Hebron, but rather it runs northwest. Now, it runs northwest for a very good reason, because the road takes the only relatively easy route out of the Jordan Valley up onto the western highlands. It's called the Wadi Faria. And uh, it's, it's quite a striking uh, structure. And we viewed it from up above, uh, looking down it, and uh, it looks pretty steep up near the top. But as you come up through there, uh, you could see where you could move flocks of animals and a family up through this particular wadi. Now, the word wadi is simply an Arabic term that refers to a, a river valley or a, what is often a dry arroyo, at least part of the year, kind of an intermittent stream. But it doesn't have to be intermittent. And, and so he would travel up this particular uh, valley to, to the highlands, taking the easiest, most accessible route by which he could move his family and move his herds. Once he had attained the ridge route, up on top he could then turn south, which is what he did, and follow the ridge route on down towards Hebron. Now we have to think about this for a minute. When he crosses the river at Adam, he's approximately 3,000 feet, over 3,000 feet below the elevation he wants to get to, which is where the ridge route runs across at the top. He's, he's over 1,000 feet below sea level there at Adam, and he's got to go to over 2,000 feet above sea level up there at the ridge route. The distance is approximately 30 miles by the route he would have taken. Not by air, but by the route he would have taken. The distance is about 30 miles. So what are we talking about? Um, 100 feet per mile? Does that multiply out right? 3,000 feet? something like that, which isn't too bad. If you have to go on a rise that's 100 foot per mile on the average, that's not too bad. I think most of us can handle that, and so could the animals. And so he took them up the Wadi Faria, and we would assume that probably if he was moving right along and didn't just stop and graze the animals for several days at a particular spot, that if he moved right along, it took him four, five days probably to, to make the trip up to the ridge route. Verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paden Aram and camped before the city. And he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hands of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And he erected an altar there, he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Shechem was a very small town. We'll discover from the events of the 34th chapter, it was a very small town. But I think it was certainly the largest Canaanite city he encountered between Succoth and, and Shechem itself. There, there was no larger town uh, along that particular route. It was located at a spot near where or actually at the point where 
a route coming up from the coast intersected the ridge route. And you see that running diagonally right here uh, between the Via Maris, which is the road over here, and the ridge route, which is here. There was a connector that ran up there and still does today. A major highway runs through there today up to what was Shechem. And so obviously it was a logical place for a city to be or for a town to be. Kind of a, uh, a town at the crossroads, if you will. Now, Shechem is located, was located, in a valley between two mountains. And these two mountains are, are rather famous in Israeli history. The one mountain is called Ebal, and the other mountain is called Gerizim. And this site would become extremely important about 500 years later when Joshua, under the command, uh, following the orders of Moses, came to this very spot, camped Israel right there on that spot. And, and, and the two halves of the nation stood on the slopes of the two mountains, half on Ebal, half on Gerizim. And, and, and jo uh, Joshua made them basically swear their allegiance to God, and there he wrote the scripture as Moses had been given it on Mount Horeb. Let's turn to uh, Joshua chapter 8 and read a little bit of that account. Now, you need to picture this. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are close to the same elevation. Both peaks are just under 3,100 feet above sea level at their tops. So they rise the better part of a thousand feet on both sides of, uh, to the north and to the south of Shechem. Then Joshua, verse 30 of Joshua 8, then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he, that is Moses, had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. And all Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levit Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, given command at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. And as he read the law, the people cried out, Amen, or the equivalent of it, echoing back and forth down that canyon on the two sides of Shechem. Better known to us, though, is a much later event that occurred, probably better part of 1,800 years later, at that same site, and that, of course, was the beautiful account given to us in the fourth chapter of John between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. 
Let's just read a little bit of that and, and see if we can picture ourselves there uh, where this event took place. John chapter 4, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And let's skip down to verse 19. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, this event took place not exactly inside of the old city of Shechem, because that was a little bit further to the west. But today, if you visit this region, you can visit the well at Sychar, Jacob's well. And you can even draw water from it and drink that water, if you will. It's in the basement, so, so to speak, of an unfinished Orthodox church. Very characteristic. Uh, if you have some kind of, of uh, what, what, what word do I want to use? If you have a vision of the Holy Land as if it were still like it were in the days of Jesus and Joshua and all of those, they'll be greatly shattered when you get there, and I'm sure you don't have such uh, a concept. But you will find that so many of the wonderful sites have got a church sitting on them. And sometimes these churches, uh, aren't, they're, they're almost an eyesore in some ways, except, you, you, of course, you understand the historical background, because many of these churches are either the church or the reconstructed church that was built, built clear back in the fourth century. So, you know, they're pretty old, or at least the site being named that site is, is ancient. Said, our ancestors worshipped, I, I think she pointed, she said, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And there is at the top of Mount Gerizim the ruined foundation of what is said to have been the Samaritan Temple, or at least the site where the Samaritan Temple was. The Samaritans had built a temple. Samaritans, you remember, were not allowed to participate in the reconstruction of the, of the temple uh, back in the days of Zerubbabel. And so, ultimately, they built their own temple. And that temple was destroyed about 100 years before Jesus by the Hasmoneans, uh, the, the Maccabean family that ruled. And uh, so they, they aren't, weren't worshiping up there in the temple anymore because it had been destroyed. 
And, of course, then re referencing to the temple in Jerusalem, and, of course, Jesus then went on to say, neither there on Gerizim or there on Moriah will people worship God because they will worship him in spirit and in truth. And we are experiencing that today. We are worshiping here in Reading. And we can worship God just as really here in Reading as you can or if you go today on, onto the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. In fact, you can probably worship him better here than there because you're surrounded by Mohammedanism as you stand there on the Temple Mount today. And as you stand on top of Mount Gerizim and look at the ruins of that temple, uh, that ruins does not draw you to God in itself. And so Jesus was referring to the days that would come, such as our day. And we don't have to be in a building. We don't have to be in one special building in order to worship God, because we are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was making clear reference to that as he referred to the ruins on one mountain and, and then to the south, to the temple that still stood. Of course, it was Herod's temple that stood in Jesus' day, which, of course, does not stand today any more than uh, Solomon's temple does. In this passage, we discover that for some reason, Jacob chose to buy a piece of land here at Shechem. And the scripture tells us that he buys it for 100 kesitas, which is translated as pieces of money. Now, most feel that this refers to silver of an unknown quantity, because this term is only used three times in the Old Testament, twice in reference to this event, and another time in the book of Job that doesn't have any reference to this, but just is just as enigmatic in terms of understanding it. We must not view this as Jacob putting a hundred coins into the hands of Hamor's sons, because as I mentioned before, the coin was not even invented for another thousand years. And so it was either little bags of silver granules or little ingots of silver or some way there were a hundred of these units, whatever they were. But they weren't coins uh, that were used to transfer this piece of land. Now if you put yourself in Jacob's sandals, you realize that Jacob had lived near Haran for 20 years. There had been a city to which he could go whenever he felt like it. And it could be that after traveling this great distance, uh, now he'd traveled over 400 miles since he had left Laban, and, and passing through or near very few cities, that he kind of had a hankering to be near an urbanized community. Uh, that, that may be, anyway. And he just couldn't conceive of, of living out in the boondocks for the rest of his life. And so he buys a piece of land adjacent to an urban center. With hindsight, knowing what the 34th chapter of Genesis brings, we could say, Jacob, this is a stupid thing to do. Plant your family right outside the gate of a Canaanite city, of a pagan Canaanite city. Now, it's true, Abraham had bought a piece of land near the city of Hebron. But when he did so, he had no small children, no one that could be perverted by the pagan community there at Hebron. What Jacob needed to remember is what happened to Lot. When Lot had moved to Sodom, what happened to Lot? He lost his wife, 
she may have been a sodomite, we don't really know, but whatever the case was, she turned and she was destroyed because of her love for what was being left behind. And then his two daughters, how well did they trust and believe in God? Obviously not very well. Committed incest with their father. Lot lost really virtually everything. And as I mentioned to you when we said, mentioned that, after that passage which talks about Lot, Lot's daughters committing incense, incest with him, Lot's gone. As far as Scripture is concerned, there's no more Lot. He's not, again, spoken of. He was now 55 miles from Hebron. <laughs> He'd come 400 miles. What's another 55? Why didn't he just buzz right on down to Hebron? Why is he parking himself here outside the city of Shechem? We're not told. Scripture does not say why he did this. And what is more important, the Scripture makes no comment whatsoever on him consulting God. Oh God, is this where I should camp? Is this where I should buy land? And so he put himself here. I don't have it on the outline, and, and you know this passage, so I'll, I'll just read it to you quickly here. Uh, in the first chapter of James, we read this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. God wants us to consult him on every issue. We so often quote from the third chapter of Proverbs, and I think sometimes we almost quote it gribbly, glibly. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. That is, lean not unto your own wisdom. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. It's so easy to say, but do we do it? Do we acknowledge Him in all our ways? Or do we compartmentalize our lives and say, well, God would be concerned about what I do here, so I'm going to ask Him, but He doesn't care what I do over here. Now, it's really true. God is probably not real concerned upon whether, about whether you choose a vanilla ice cream cone or a chocolate ice cream cone, right? Uh, that's not earth-shaking, probably, in its ultimate, ultimate repercussions. But God does not want us to compartmentalize our lives. And for us to try to determine what God cares about and what God doesn't care about. I think he does not want us to just feel that there are certain areas that we can just make our own decision irrespective of him. As I mentioned to you oh, months ago, we have friends who even pray when they walk in the grocery store that they will make wise selections as they pass down the aisles. Not because they're primarily concerned about whether you get your macaroni in round pieces or square pieces, but that the money used is wisely used because it all comes from God. And stewardship applies even to the purchase of groceries. I think God wants us to acknowledge him in every area of our lives and to seek his guidance in every significant decision and certainly Choosing a piece of land to buy in, in this pagan land of Canaan and living on it was significant to God. We will see in the next chapter that Jacob will pay a very heavy price for this decision. And I can't help but feel that had he consulted God, he would not have done this. Well, 
he may have been wanting God to bless his plans. Have you ever done that? Gone ahead and done something that said, now, dear Lord, bless what I've done, rather than asking God whether I should do it in the first place. But I've done this now, Lord, please bless me. You know, I've bought 5,000 shares of Watsy Watsy, uh, you know, uh, toy company. Now bless them and make them multiply, right? So what does he do? He builds an altar to El Elohi Israel, which is very interesting because it's the first time we have any reference to um, his using the name that God gave him there at the book, book Jabbok. But obviously it's stuck in his mind. Ah, I'm Israel. So he names it here and, and names the altar uh, after the God of himself, of, of the people that would come through him. It's very possible he built the altar to commemorate the fact that, and we won't take time now to turn back to the Genesis 12 passage, but you remember when Abraham had his encounter with God and God first revealed to him the great covenant was here. It's at this place. And so it's very possible that Jacob <coughs> built the altar to commemorate Abraham's encounter with God, which had occurred uh, many, many years before. <coughs> Now, the passage tells us that Jacob came safely to Shechem in the land of Canaan, which I think is a statement emphasizing that God had promised this. Again, we won't take the time to turn back to the 28th chapter, but at Bethel, where Abraham, that is where Jacob met God, and he had his vision of the latter, God said, I will bring you safely back into this land. And the scripture is saying, I have brought Jacob safely into this land, just as God had promised. It also may be saying, he came safely to Shechem, but he will not leave safely from Shechem. Two other interesting items, and we'll be to the 34th chapter, that are not mentioned in this passage, is first of all, that Jacob dug a well here. The scripture does not say that here, but that's exactly what it said in the fourth chapter of John the well that had been dug by Jacob uh, here at this particular spot, which is very logical. He bought this land. Probably he would dig a well there. And then secondly, and uh, finally, if you turn to the very end of the book of Joshua, you find another reference to this piece of land. Joshua 24, verse 32. This is after the land has been conquered. Israel is, is in the land. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. Next week our topic is treachery in Shechem, and it's really a sad account. But the scripture tells it all. And that's what makes it, I think, so meaningful to us.